I was sad to learn this week that the indie video game studio Deguta Fabrique is halting production. I worked with them a while back on a fantastic podcast called One Cool Thing, in which creatives are invited to share one cool thing that is informing their practice. You can still hear all the episodes, and I think they're excellent. We start this week with an excerpt from a chat the host Hannah Nicklin did with Rem Breyer. Rem Breyer created a video game that I absolutely adore called Unpacking. Rem begins with her one cool thing. Yo, T-Bone, did you produce this? Sounds good, right? So my one cool thing is sort of a two cool things in one. I don't know. Eki stamps, which is station stamps, and goshuin, which are uh, temple and shrine seals. And they kind of go together. They're similar in a lot of ways, and they both involve stamping a piece of paper. The station stamps, I looked it up, apparently this started way back in like 1931 was the first time they they had those. And uh, when I spoke with my Japanese teacher and told her that I collected station stamps on my on my last visit, she was like, they still have these? Like, they're still a thing? The way I found out about it was my friend found a TikTok about it and we were going to be overseas together. So I was like, why not? Why not add another collectathon to the trip? It's just something people do. It's a nice souvenir. There's like a specific booth you go to. So every time I go, I'm like hunting down this one specific spot. Sometimes the temples and shrines are pretty big. You don't know where this will be. You get a temple worker or, or a shrine worker. You find the spot and they uh, do the calligraphy right in front of you and, uh, and then stamp it. It's, it's really pretty and a really nice souvenir that also doesn't take up a lot of space and doesn't cost very much, so it feels very accessible. Unpacking, it came about from Tim actually moving in with me and we were unpacking his things and we were like, oh, there's something game-like about this. There was especially this element of discovering something about the life of the person whose items you were unpacking from just what they owned. Like every item Tim had, had this, this story and sometimes it was self-evident, but sometimes it was the story that he'd have to tell himself. So in unpacking, we very much let the items do the talking themselves. We had very few words in that game. But I think in general, there's like a certain physicality to memories. Items just, they bring back things that, that have happened, things that happened when when we got them, or things related to the people we got them from. I think some of my most treasured belongings actually came from my, my grandma. 
a few years before she passed, we went through this box of um, photos and kind of miscellaneous things, documents, items, trinkets that belonged to my great-grandma. This was like a box that almost got thrown away and no one really wanted to take the time to like organize these photos into uh, an album. And when I came to visit, my grandma brought it up and I was like, oh, we can do this, let's do this. And we went out and bought like one of those big sticky albums. My grandma passed away actually the very year we started developing Unpacking just before Tim moved in with me while we were packing his things. The dedication at the end of the credits is to my grandma. That experience of putting that book together was just like really meaningful to me. Whenever I think about people's belongings and, you know, people talking about throwing things out, I always just think about like the history of everyone's items and like what they mean. And, and that's why I kind of have a hard time throwing things away. Although I, I assure you, I'm not a hoarder. <laughs> I do throw things away. It's just painful. <laughs> Unpacking takes place entirely in Brisbane where we live. It's in different suburbs of Brisbane. One nice one, for example, is in the childhood bedroom that you also revisit at a later stage. The way the walls are built is very specific to Queensland where Brisbane is. The type of house is called a Queenslander. So they're like very typical to Queensland. There's like a eucalyptus tree in the, well, a, a gum tree in the, in the window. And even the audio like is all recorded in Brisbane, mostly in uh, Jeff's neighborhood, but some of them like in, in other people's houses, like, like our apartment. And so you hear like Australian birds outside and Australian birds sound actually really distinctive. Sometimes they sound horrendous. I love them, but they, they look beautiful and sound insane. We actually had to like tune out one of the birds on purpose because it was so annoying. <laughs> it's been removed. It's a bird that lives outside of our window and drives me insane half of the year. If you do just listen to what's around you, you might be surprised by how much complexity there is in different sounds that can be heard and pleasure that can be heard. I'm Trevor Cox, I'm Professor of Acoustics at the University of Salford in Manchester, and I'm the author of Sonic Wonderland. So it's an interesting thing because the bird calls in Australia are quite different. I mean, they're, they're less melodious sort of tweeting, they're more sort of a bit screechier. They just sound a bit alien. And the sounds that we have around us are part of, you know, what makes us feel at home. In the same way as I move a country and it looks different, I will feel alien in that place. And so we do get that. If you move abroad and the bird song is different, you're suddenly transported. You're not in your hometown. And people can find those changes in sound, you know, a source of alienation. It, it can be too much and you, you'd hoped, you wish to go back to the, the tuneful songbirds of home. 
Stuart Dempster was the trombonist and then comes back to me. He has there's a fun interview where he says something like, you know, so he's improvising. He said, yeah, normally when you make a, a mistake in improvisation, it has the good grace to disappear, but it doesn't here or something along those lines. Yeah, I didn't grow up near it, but I visited it as a kid. Yeah, so the Greenwich Hood Tunnel's great. I was actually in it probably about, ooh, two years ago or something. As you go down it, you kind of suddenly are immersed in this sort of muddy, super sound. And, and, and it just, the sound travels so far in there, and it's always got a lot of people in it, usually. And so you kind of got this really kind of quite cacophonous sound going on. So, tremendous echoes in there. But I think that's true of lots of tunnels that you go into them. And I think even as an adult, you suddenly go, oh, this is fun. I think the sad thing about it is in the most obvious examples, we, we sort of kind of get excitement for them, but maybe in the less obvious ones, we kind of, you know, kind of tend to gloss over them. It's funny you mentioned that because I was thinking about it and I was thinking that, like, Echo is one of the first phenomena that I've been able to explain to my kids or just demonstrate to my kids. Yeah, I think with a kid, I mean, especially if you've got young toddlers, I mean, you take them into somewhere which is really reverberant. I mean, that could be a big atrium or that could be a, a tunnel or whatever it is. And they immediately start playing with it, which can be quite embarrassing as a parent, can't it? It might not be what you necessarily want to be hearing. But they immediately kind of do this naturally. I think as adults, we kind of lose that a bit. But even as an adult, I think I've been on holidays where people go, oh, there's an echo here and you try it out. It's something we all like to try and do. We just don't do very often, I think. One other thing from reading um, your work and stuff is like you seem to be attuned to ambient sound or just a sound in general. Are most of us missing something? I think definitely, and, and I think it's exaggerated in modern worlds where we've got a lot of headphones. So what we're doing is tending to sort of kind of put on our podcasts or put on our music as we go out and about rather than listen. So for example, one of the pleasures for me for cycling is actually to not wear headphones when I'm doing that and actually listen to what's around me. If you do just listen to what's around you, you might be surprised by how much complexity there is in different sounds that can be heard and pleasure that can be heard. You know, it's, it's I live in a busy urban city. I commute through that to work on a bike. If I hear birdsong, it's a kind of delight, but it's a slightly rare delight, unfortunately. I think there is something beautiful to listen to around you, more than just listening into people's gossip, which we all kind of like doing, but just listening to what you can, snippets of sound you can pick up. So one of the things that I don't think people have particularly documented in a very thorough way, but cities are generally starting to sound more and more the same. We have our same mobile phones, which make the same kind of sounds, the cars are kind of same sold around the world, so they kind of sound the same. The shops and the pop music is all kind of sounding the same as we go. So, so as you move around, you're less likely to come across something which sounds orally very different. So the globalisation is sort of kind of harmonising what we're hearing and what we're also seeing. Well, there was a move in Europe to try and protect quieter areas, you know, these sort of kind of tranquil areas. The idea being, I mean, basically, if you look at what's happening with traffic, 
is that as you get more congestion, people tend to sort of find back roads to try and avoid the, the gridlock or they or they commute slightly early or slightly later. So you lose the quiet times of the day and you start losing the quiet locations. And so there was a move in the European Noise Directive to try and identify places which were more peaceful and prevent them getting polluted. I was going to ask you about your collection of, of sounds. If you're sort of trying to I don't know, amuse someone. What was the, what's the sort of first sound you would you show them from your collection, or first thing you download? Well, if I'm if they're physically in this building, I trot them off to the Anacoa Chamber because there's you know there's no way they're not going to be impressed by that. But I had to do one which was not available. I guess I would probably go to the Inch and Down Old Depot recordings. This is the place where I broke the world record for the longest echo, or the to be strictly correct, the longest reverberation time. And I've had the pleasure of playing a saxophone a few times in there. So you you play a kind of nice bass note in there and and the note's going to last for over a minute. So it's got this really weird sound where you can do things like play chords and build them up yourself. You can play counterpoint against yourself if you're skillful enough. It's the sort of place where you probably want to play a lot of modal jazz, really. I'm not really a jazzist, but that would probably be the best way of doing it. And there's just something about when you play it, the whole place just fills up this smog of sound and, you, you know, you, it just sounds unbelievably unusual. It's not something you hear normal. So that's probably what I'd pick as something which would just stand out and be, wow, that's really different. It's lined with concrete. So what they basically did is they tunnelled out a side of the hillside in Scotland. So this was having shipping oil during World War II and it was being protected from bombing raids. So it's basically half a metre thick concrete against rock, which is the reason it's so reverberant, because that just doesn't really absorb sound. And it was sealed against the oil leaking. It's just this kind of most amazing space, because you, why else would you have one very big space with such bomb-proof construction? It's quite unusual, which is the reason the acoustic has you know, got a world record, because it's so different. I mean, you could go and find bigger spaces, like St Paul's Cathedral in London is bigger, but it's then got glass and wood in it, which then absorbs sound. It's the fact there's nothing in there to really much absorb sound. Normally when you make a, a mistake on improvisation, it has the good grace to disappear, but it doesn't here. Thanks to Trevor Cox for talking to me. I really recommend his book, Sonic Wonderland. It's been a big inspiration for this show. And also thank you to Ren Breyer. Another thing I recommend is the game Unpacking that Ren designed. And you can hear more of that conversation with Ren and the host Hannah Nicklin on the excellent One Cool Thing podcast from indie game studio Deguta Fabrique who will be sadly missed. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then please leave us a review, give us a like, subscribe. It really helps people find the show. And if you're really feeling like saying thank you, then go to tbone.productions and get some Sounds Good Right merch. It really helps me to be able to do this. This episode was recorded, produced and sound designed by me, Tom Wally. See you next time. Yo, T-Bone, did you produce this? Sounds good, right?